I remember uh, very clearly a time in my practice when I was working on secondhand knowledge. People were telling me what to do, and I was doing it very faithfully and diligently. I always had a very strong, striving personality. And um, I was a very hard worker. I figured the harder I worked, the more things would be accomplished, the more this whole spiritual momentum could get moving. <clears throat> and uh, I remember um, at one point, it was happened in Asia, uh, I got very um, upset with myself because I really knew nothing. I had just been operating on what people were telling me. And uh, doing, you know, being a good meditator, but not really understanding a thing. In fact, one of my teachers says, well, your seal is good, your samadhi is okay, but your understanding is zero. (laughs) 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 What did that have to do with anything? I was being a good yogi. You see, (laughs) that's the way I was thinking. But at some point, it, it, um, it boiled over. And I really felt like a fake, a, a spiritual, f- not just a flake, but a fake. And uh, I, it, got, it reached a, a point of despair uh, where uh, I w- wasn't going to believe anything that I knew. And so I took it all apart. I took the whole practice, all of the instructions, everything that I'd ever been told, and I made a little inward commitment that I wasn't going to ever talk about them or assume their truth until I knew it for myself. And uh, then it just, piece by piece, I brought it back in. And it was a very important time for me. Uh, and that duration it was years, not weeks or months. <clears throat> It was very uh, joyful, actually. Part of that time, my two compatriots here were with me down in uh, Thailand. Uh, But uh, what was missing for me, uh, I mean, I I was, you know, do this, I'll do it. But the principles, the principle, the law on which uh, all of the techniques were based. What, what was the founding law, the founding principle for all of this? I mean, just doing it, for what reason? Why non-judgmental awareness? We walk up this banner, the steps there, and at the top it says, have no expectations. Why? What does that have to do with anything? Anyway, I couldn't do it. Right? Why non-striving? I wanted to judge. I was full of judgment. Why not? I mean, why why take it? I'm not taking it lying down. (laughs) 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 Um, So uh, the rest of my uh, spiritual history has been to recover the principle and then to teach from that principle, a why, what it, it makes complete sense when we understand the principle, everything. But we have to, 
we have to ingest, we have to realize the principle, and then everything just makes absolute sense. Up until the realization of that principle, we're playing the game of it. But we don't, it's, it's a little awkward, to say the least, because we're accepting things in that don't fit our own assumptions of truth. And what I have found is that this principle can be understood by even a beginning meditator because the moment that you sit down, the principle is beginning to be realized. And I'll explain that in a moment. So what is the principle that I want to talk about tonight? And it's a permutation of the talk I uh, did a couple of nights ago. And I hope it's, uh, and dovetails, I think, nicely with Guy's talk last night. But I want to frame it differently, because I think that different ways we frame it, suddenly there's a different way it impacts us. And the principle uh, that I want to talk about is that um, we think, when we look at ourselves, that we have a mind. Don't we? We think we have a mind. We think we're that it's part of us somehow. That we, but what? But we're more than the mind, and that we have it. The truth is, the mind has us. The truth is, the sense of me, of you, of us, is a mental process. You are not outside the mind. You may be out of your mind, but you're not outside of your mind having a mental experience. But it feels that way, doesn't it? It feels like somehow me, the sense of me, includes the mind but is greater than. And I'm saying that it is not. It's part of the mind. The mind is not something that happens to you. In fact, the sense of you happens within the mind. You and the mind are not separate. Now, there's no way out. If you are part of the mental processes, then there's no way out of you. There's no way you can extract yourself from the mind. Nothing you can do. And, you see, this, at this juncture, there are two distinct styles of practice that evolve. If you think you can influence the mind from the outside in, then you're going to have strategies to do just that. And you're going to work this thing so that you can manipulate and encourage and cultivate and all the other things Right? And beautify the mind. And there's a whole style of practice that is geared towards that end. But if you're part of the mind, if you are part of the very mechanism, the very mental thought of the mind, 
That's a different style of practice. What we realize when we realize that we are part of the mind is that you can't argue with it. Can you? You can't take one hemisphere of the mind and pit it against the other. And all the experiences are part of the mind. The data comes through the different senses and the mind consolidates and configures the world from this sense data with memory. And then a thought comes up in respect to what that memory is as being an argument for or against that memory. And so the problem is that the one, the mind, the whole of the mind gets fractured. It's pitted against itself. I think Lincoln said, to paraphrase, a mind that's divided against itself can't stand. (laughs) Now, from this perspective, what's the healing? What's what is, the, what is our job? Our job is to stop arguing with ourselves, To let the mind become whole again, all we have to do is cease the argument. Quit making an enemy out of the perceptual difficulties we are having. Do you see this? Now, I want to say that the first time we sit down, we begin to understand that. So this is not beyond your comprehension at all. A complete realization of it may have yet to come to you, but it will if you work cooperatively within the spirit of this principle. If you work counter to the spirit of this principle, you may have experiences of anatta, but you will not have a realization of anatta, of selflessness. because you'll be working counterproductively to the very law itself. And when we do that, we reaffirm the fact that we're outside of it, even if we want to believe that we're within it. I love this, you know, because this really puts us out on the line. Now, how is it that when we first sit down that we have this realization? The first time you sit down, and I do this for beginning meditators, and I teach beginning meditators quite a bit, they realize that they have no control over their mind whatsoever. That it thinks itself. Now, if you're outside of the mind, you should have some influence. Shouldn't you? And they don't know what to make of that because it's the first time they've ever sat and experienced themselves as being completely out of control. And when we start looking, we're completely out of control. Why? Because we're a thought within that particular process. It's not within our control. And every time we sit down and we see another aspect of mind... we're beginning to see that we have very little influence on whether a thought comes, an emotion comes, a physical sensation, its duration. 
we see we can have a lot of problems with it by arguing against it because we fracture that whole. And the quieter we become, the easier chance and time we have with difficulty. So we can begin to see that contracting, doing, manipulating, and being quiet and still with, these are very different impacts it has upon the process of just sitting. And if you let that in, in terms of what the principle is trying to state, you begin to see, we begin to see, oh, wait a second here, of course, it fits absolutely the principle of me being a part of the mind. And now we have to make our practice, allow our practice to be totally in conjunction, aligned with that principle. It, we ha- so why, does thing, why do things have to be non-judgmental? Because a judgment is an argument and a further division. And the reason that division, when that sense of argument occurs, the sense of I occurs within it. That's what the I is, is an argument against reality. That's what we are, an image. And when we're quiet, the image recedes. Now, there are a whole set of laws that follow that principle, follow that truth. And tonight I want to talk about, I mean, there are many, it's actually a very exciting, once you begin to see the truth of that, then all of the laws of Dharma fit absolutely, they line up perfectly in relationship to that truth. And they don't quite work that way when we practice in accordance with us being outside and trying to manipulate the mind through external forces, through efforts and through striving and through ambition. So the effort I need to make is the effort to make my mind whole. It's not no effort. It's the effort to heal the rift of division that is occurring within it. So effort is in alignment with establishing a whole mind. And may I say a whole mind is no mind, which I'll get to later. The only reason the mind has substance is because of its division. So what are some of the laws? You see, you'll know them. And many psychologists and psychologists and social workers, psychiatrists and psychologists, work with them because it doesn't work if you betray them, but they don't understand the principle. And the whole thing rests upon the truth of that principle. So what are some of the ones? And Again, they're endless, but I've just picked out a few. The first law, the more you avoid something, the more you ensure its return. You see, once you understand the principle, the, the truth of the sense of me arising as a mental process, then how can you avoid something? 
because aversion creates an argument. I don't like what's happening. And so you can't get rid of an argument except by ceasing the argument. So it's no wonder that in our argument we try to do things. We try to repress it, suppress it, deny it, avoid it. But it's all a different expression and form of the same argument. And so we're not going to be able to get rid of what we are aversive to by sustaining the argument and not looking at that particular principle itself. So, of course, the Buddha talked about aversion or wanting, which is aversion in the opposite direction, as primary ways to have the whole of the mind rather than the fractured and separate parts. The mind turns into two, you, and the world turns into two. If there are two hemispheres, there's two of us in this room. And it's impossible to do an end run around a problem in this way. You can't get over a problem. How can an argument get over itself? And I also think it works in terms of the external because when you begin to see that the boundaries we assume, like me in here and you out there, is just a mental boundary of resistance, and you release that resistance, suddenly the mind expands to fill the world. And so the principles also work externally. And I have a perfect example of that in Asia when I first arrived, not long after I was on my porch, my little kuti, and I saw something I'd never seen before. It was a centipede, about eight inches long, and it was moving like a snake along the ground. And I had this panic in me, and I thought, I've never seen anything so uh, terrifying in my life. Now, I must have had previous incarnation alongside centipedes because I said, I want nothing to do with that thing. And I was extraordinarily aversive to it. So, within a week's time, I was lying in my cootie with a little shelf above where I was lying. I heard some scratching around. I took my flashlight, and there was a centipede hanging upside down with its legs eating a scorpion one foot from my head. (laughs) And I said, oh, man, the story begins. (laughs) And then for four years, I had nothing but horror stories to tell about centipedes, eventually getting bitten by one. And that was it. And I knew I was doing it from my absolute terror of it. I knew I was bringing it to me. You see, this is much, this reality that we create, we can't bypass anything here. And it really fits nicely with what Guy was talking about last night when he was talking about having emotional problems and saying, okay, I'm just going to, you know, use my spiritual path to sort of, you know, journey around them. Sort of do an in run 
around the difficulty so I don't have to face them. You can't do that because it's all mental. There's a unceasing argument at every level. What does it mean to go to the difficult? It means facing our argument. That's all it means. Now there's, to every um, law, the more you avoid something, the more you ensure the re- its return, there is also an application of the principle to correct that, to, be, to, to, to work cooperatively with that law. And the, the, the application that works along with that law is allowance and letting be. That's why the... You see, you begin to hear the teaching within the application of the law that's unaligned with the principle. Are you following all that? So, of course, I... Of course, of course. You see, it's of course. Not like, what am I doing? Of course, let it be. Non-judgmental words, of course non-judgmental, because judgment's an, an argument, creating the cantankerous me against what I want life to be as an experience of mind. It's interesting to me, very interesting. Christ said, resist not evil. That's an application of this principle. But I don't know what fundamental Christians make of that. Because they work counter. They want to keep evil outside of them and keep the whole thing very firmly divided. I don't know how they reconcile Christ saying resist not evil. It sounds like you're siding with the bad guys. But it makes complete sense when you understand this law. And the only thing I can do with anything is to let it be itself. The only thing, the sense of me, the sense of me, can do with anything in order not to fracture the mind and thereby create the sense, the assumption of separation of me and the 10,000 things is to let everything be itself. Of course, of course. What about anger, you see? See it for what it is. You can't decide you won't be angry. I'm not going to be angry anymore. Well, that's nice. That's one thought pitted against an emotion. That's going to do a lot, isn't it? It'll create some tension and thereby be repressed but the anger's still going to be there. In fact, it's going to be there in exemplified form because it's being repressed by argument. 
and encouraged. I can't decide. I'm not going to be angry anymore. One person I know says, I've decided I'm not going to be angry anymore. And the next day I saw her in rage. So she wanted to try harder. I said, well, you can do that and kill yourself with insanity. Or you can come back to sanity. Okay, so I'm just going to move through these things. I could spend the whole time on that because it's a fun. It's all, they're all fun. It becomes fun when you, oh, yeah, of course. All of a sudden you, you know, you can start spouting your own laws. <laughs> and be a lawyer. The second law. Again, we're just playing. You cannot force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. Right? You've forgotten something. Have you noticed? You forget something. I can't remember. Right? Doesn't work, does it? And then you say you just leave it alone. It pops up on its own, like a cork in the water. Why? Why can't you go digging for it? Isn't that interesting? And it's important at this point to understand energetically what drives the mind. If it's not our force of will, it's intention. Intention is one of the least understood by most early meditators. The value and the uh, worth of intention. And see, intention isn't a grasping need. It's an energetic inclination. It's, an ener- it's energetic, where everything is working in totality of itself, in the wholeness of itself. It's working through the heart, not the mind, you might say, if you use the wise intention. And thereby, it's all lined up. The mind is whole, and then it's a given that this will happen. So the second, can't force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. Cannot force readiness, can you? You want to be ready? You want to you be finished with something? I want to be finished with. But you can't force it. There's no way for readiness to occur, for maturation to happen, for ripeness to befall until we've experienced sufficiently what is needed for readiness to occur. There's no way to get outside of that. And Forgiveness is another example of this. Many of us are tortured by our unforgiving mind. Just, and we try to force forgiveness, and we try to force it by bringing forth other, you know, I'll hold the person in metta, and I'll do, you know, and all of that helps. But to be able to see the other person in a different light is helpful. But the resentment, the pain of what has occurred there's still resistance to that. There'll still be non-forgiveness, unforgiveness. 
You can't force yourself to get over pain. What, you, what we do, and you might try this wherever you feel unforgiving, is just go to the pain. Totally admit what the other person did or what you did. Without projection, without elaboration, simply the bare fact of what occurred. And hold it within your consciousness. Let it burn the pain. The pain will burn out. To burn itself out. If you don't add a whole tragedy, another whole layer of story to the incident, the incident itself will burn itself out. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't require an ongoing reflection from time to time because there will be areas of, especially if it were, it was a dramatic incident of unforgiveness even over time. But I have learned how to how to bring forth forgiveness by facing the event straight on. And it's let's go, it, lets go, it lets go of you because you cease the argument of, and torture of your regret. So these, see, once you under, once we get this down, and we start practicing these laws, then you start finding your own way through your own difficulties. And the skillful means can be helpful, but ultimately, the aversion or the grasping is what needs to cease. And that can only be done by not doing, not by doing more. When we do something, we're trying to get over something. When we don't do, we allow the thing to be just what it is. The less we do, the more we allow something to be what it is. And the mind comes together as a whole when it is seen for what it is. The third, oh, and the application of this particular law is patience. Patience. Since you can't force anything, you have to be patient. And patience, the Buddha said, was the highest form of devotion. You see, patience is so beautiful because patience is love. Patience is not not demanding anything, not demanding forgiveness. It's the willingness to let the pain express itself patiently, not waiting, timing it. How much more do I have to go? And therefore, there's no side being taken against the pain that's being expressed. What's the, again, we're just playing, and I'm just trying to get it all in before the talk ends. <laughs> what's, the, <laughs> what's the third law of these laws? 
cannot eliminate anything through force of will. Can't get rid of your suffering through your force of will. Can you? How then do you get rid of suffering if not through force of will? Through observation. Because observation holds no tension and therefore does not create a division between the experience and the person having it. Observation by definition, is unification. Hmm. This is why wisdom works. This is the reason We emphasize wisdom because wisdom is a byproduct of observation. You ever have a song in your head? Yeah, everybody's not in their head. When somebody says, I have a song in my head, what should I do? I said, do you know the saying, face the music? That's what we have to do. Go to the jukebox and don't sing along. The fact is that you're either aversive to that song or you like it so much that you are singing along. Either way, it's going to continue. You put another quarter in. G3. (laughs) Obsessive thoughts around and around. Often we haven't acknowledged the emotion. We're aversive to the emotion that's spinning the thought. And because we haven't brought that into the totality of our awareness, we're just aversive to the thinking, the rotary of the thinking. It persists. Include the emotional response that drives the thought as well as the thought. And don't resist either. And it ends. The fourth law. We cannot meet the mind with the same energy it is emitting. You ever try to control your mind? You ever try to find yourself controlling your breath, right? Many people have this problem. I'm controlling my breath. Now I don't want to control my breath. So we try to control in reverse the controlling. Doesn't work, does it? I'm angry, and I'm irritated that I'm angry. doesn't work. What's the application? I like this one. Love. You can only meet experience with love because love has no opposite. Love is whole. It's an expression of wholeness. You see where all this is coming from? You see how it all comes together in some kind of beautiful crystal perfection? 
It's not 10,000 different techniques that we're trying to do to bring about something called nirvana, which don't understand how the technique is related to this at all. That this system has absolute beauty when understood on its terms. And everything we do can fit very nicely into the perfection of that beauty, in alignment with that beauty. The fifth law. It's all or nothing. Cannot leave any part of ourselves behind. Because it's an aspect that we are denying of ourselves. Here's a nice example of what I'm saying in this particular law. We all are feel and want to be good-hearted people. But we're not always good-hearted people. But if we have the image that we should be, and somebody asks a favor of us, we're more likely to say yes than to say no because we want ourselves to be seen as good-hearted person. And so we don't take into account the resentment of not wanting to do it. We think the resentment is what we're trying to get over to be good-hearted. And when, when you leave the resentment out and say yes to something and don't incorporate the no that accompanies the yes, and in most and in most offerings, most generosity, there's a no that accompanies a yes, you find yourself getting bitter and more resentful. And finally it'll burst out into argument. So a good practice is to listen to the no that parallels the yes. Will you drive me to the airport at 2 o'clock in the morning? No. (laughs) That's pretty clear. 7 o'clock at night, I don't really feel like it, but I'll do it. But But I don't dismiss not feeling like it. I see that part too. And it comes, see, when it comes, when the haves are not bitterly disputed and there isn't an identified half against pitted against its opposite, something else makes the decision. Love makes the decision because the mind becomes whole. Love makes the decision and love has a no that's equal and volume to its yes, because it takes us into consideration equal to the task that's being asked from us. We don't leave ourselves out. We don't leave any aspect of ourselves out. Nothing is left behind. And we also, there's a corollary to this law you see, when you start exploring it like this, you, you, pick up, you pick up different aspects of the mind that aren't often talked about. One is that there is nothing ultimately more true than anything else of the mind. 
an emotion. Sometimes we weigh in feeling as our feelings being more sincere and authentic than our thoughts. But they're equally as true or untrue, depending upon which side you take, as anything else. What is ultimately more true is the whole of the mind. Because it's seen not from partisanship, It's what I believe the Buddha was talking about when he talked about clear comprehension, but that's my own definition. And in wholeness, you see the non-harm of all things. But you can't bring yourself along in wholeness because the sense of us, of you, of me, had its prominence in the argument. And when the argument ceases, so does the egoic sense of I. And what is left? What is left? Is everything that's really important. Which brings us to the sixth and final law of tonight. But I hope you take these things and move them to your heart's content. Build your practice. And see that as you sit down, you are gaining a foothold in the realization of the unification of mind. And that dispute brings forth upheaval. And you see it because you feel it in yourself as an experience, not as a belief, not as something the Buddha said and I'm trying to live up to. You see it as an actuality. And the sixth We cannot effort, we cannot strategize our way to transcendence, to freedom. Only through stillness. And when we see it, you see, you can't think, okay, now how do I get this... You can't plot it that way because that's the mind divided that's trying to recover itself through division. We have to cease. We have to surrender. We have to completely release. And the way we get to the point where we, get to, where we see it is that we understand at some point that there is nothing I can do to get there. Nothing the sense of I can do. Listen to what I'm saying. Because you could easily write and say, he told me there's nothing I could do to get to freedom, and then I'm out of here. (laughs) Right? 
And believe me, I get more notes to that effect than what, in what I'm actually saying. There is nothing the sense of you can do to free yourself. Except be quiet. We cannot build ourselves a chamber of freedom in the mind. You can try, and many people do, to cave out, to burrow out what seems like a nirvanic heaven. But it will be temporary because all fabrication, mental fabrication, is we can only be still. We can only be still. And it's not our timing. We can clean our rooms, dust the furniture, ethically keep ourselves straight, and leave the windows open. Whether a breeze comes in, I don't know. It may or may not. But that's all we can do. And be quiet. The whole of the mind. Accessible to you equally as is accessible to the Buddha. But are you willing to cease your argument? Or do you feel still find prominence within your contention? My friends, it's up to each one of us, isn't it? Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? And how do we sit? How do we sit? Miserably? Feel the stillness. We had the means we could spread it on bread. It's so thick. Blessed is the peacemaker, Christ said, for his is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the person who ceases argument. For his is the realm of peace, of freedom.
enjoy yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.